You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. I am Hody Johns. I'm Jordan Kleinsmith. And I'm Brian Walgamuth. And this is Enemy of My Enemy. Uh, we are a libertarian program where we talk about different perspectives from a left libertarian, right libertarian, and center libertarian positions. Today, Jordan's going to be repping the lefties. Brian's got the righties. And I, Hody, will have the center. Today, we're going to be talking about the uh, recent stimulus. Um, on March 11th, President Biden signed the American Rescue Plan into law. It is the third round of stimulus checks. Since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, it is the largest of those. $1,400 will go to every taxpayer with an additional sum to be sent to taxpayers with dependents. Uh, exclusions are made for those who are in higher tax brackets. Many concessions were made to get the bill passed. A $15 minimum wage mandate that was originally included with the bill was dropped, and several earmarks were placed to assure the passage of the act. Many argue that this is necessary for relief for people who are justifiably struggling during the pandemic, while others say this is just digging us into a deeper hole Brian, I'll start with you. What are your thoughts on the stimulus? I, you know, the funny thing is this, is that when you look at what stimulus is being used for and the dollar amounts given, um, great story I have is uh, my, my, my daughter's um, boyfriend walked out of Walmart uh, a couple of days ago. And there's a kid, he's just walking out with that cart and he's happy and he's got a basket full of groceries and he's got this big karaoke speaker. Now, Sure, he's getting what he wants, but, you know, it's like, all right, is this really helping people that are hurting or is it just buying people off so they can go ahead and put some more money into the economy? And the reality is it's it's a little of both, but it, just like what government normally does, it just basically says, yeah, we think this will work. They throw it out the door and pat themselves on the back. And then if it doesn't work, they go, oh, we got bad information. Or if it does work, they go, hey, give us another couple of years. We'll do even better. So the ones that are going to pay for it, are, it's not going to be the debt. It's going to be all of a sudden when you walk up to Subway and order a, a foot-long sub, and it's $25. So. Okay. Uh, Jordan, what do you think? Um, well, I, you know, <clears throat> there's certainly the concern about the impact on, you know, price levels and things like that over time. I mean, Milton Friedman talked about the whole concept of taking a helicopter and just dropping out dollars, you know, on people and that, that whole idea that if you do that, that, yeah, everybody's going to get money, but it's going to raise the overall price level for people. But I, I think the biggest thing that I would advise to fellow libertarians looking at this issue is to not make it into too much of an issue unless they're also prepared to really re-expose all of the other spending that's going on elsewhere. Because I think, you know, if you if you think about what happened um, during COVID with the Federal Reserve, and how much money was injected. I mean, if you think about it, we have a $1.9 million cash infusion from this stimulus. 
you know, not all of it's going into American pockets, like arguably it should, if that's really what this is, you know, a lot of it's corporate welfare and, and everything else. Um, but at the end of the day, way more than that was already infused into our, our monetary system. It just went into financial markets as opposed to, into the retail spending sector. And so what we have here is that, yeah, you might have some folks, you know, as Brian mentioned, inevitably you're going to have folks making frivolous purchases. I mean, it's the same thing with a tax return, though, or when they get their refunds. You know, arguably, I would advise anybody, as I try to do, I try to owe the IRS what I file every year, about $1,000. I don't want the, I don't want to float them a tax-free loan over the course of the year, you know, and, and then try to get that back from them, especially for people in like California where they get IOUs one year and stuff like that. I mean, so it, you have to kind of look at it in the grand scheme of things. And, and I think overall, for a lot of people, this is very much needed money and this is going to help them, you know, make that rent check or, or make, you know, whatever it is. It's going to be very interesting, like, you know, as they say, lift moratoriums on um, evictions before too long here, you know, that money is probably going to get forced to go towards rent more so than just frivolous retail purchases and and things like that. So I I, I would just encourage libertarians to just think about this in the grand scheme of things. Yes, there's going to be some injection into the retail sector. Yes, that might cause some shortages. Yes, we might see shorter term inflation and in prices than maybe we're used to seeing because it's targeted, you know, in the retail sector rather than in the financial sector where most, most of the new money gets flooded in, you know, by the Federal Reserve and whatnot. So I, I, I would just say like, yes, it's not ideal, but it's one of those situations where I think the three of us in many instances would all agree, like in a vacuum, in a perfect world scenario, ceteris paribus, all things constant, we'd say, no, this is stupid. Like, why not do that? Why are we doing this? But in a situation like this where, you know, we're already in putting all this money into other sectors, we're already you know, the, the, the farm has already been given up, so to speak, and there's a lot of people hurting. And, and I guess the last point I would make is the, the thing I would advise a lot of libertarians to think about is um, there's this sort of knee jerk reaction um, a lot of times to say, well, there's a lot that the free market should be doing to help these people. And in a free market, all these people would be helped. And there's a lot already going on. I mean, GoFundMe, lots of awesome stuff happening to like, you know, connect givers to, to that. But there's also huge infrastructure structural voids of stuff where the government as for decades just edged people out that would otherwise be providing those services and so there is no private sector alternative for like short-term lending and stuff that you know is going to be you know with zero interest and and stuff so we i think we have to also just think about the fact that there's going to be these transition periods where we need to just accept that maybe the government needs to be the channel in a short term as we phase it out and phase in, you know, uh, other alternatives. Cool. Like, so my thoughts here, here's the thing. If this was actually a stimulus, the amount of money that they made could be used to give, and not, I'm just not talking about taxpayers. I'm talking about kids, everybody, you give everybody in the U S population $5,400 right. plus for the same amount. Right. right. That we printed. So how much are you getting? Well, you're getting $1,400. So where'd the rest of it go? That's a problem. And so when you break this down, um, thankfully, they actually uh, had to read this entire bill in, in Congress. I don't know if you saw it. So it was it was 
it's funny because not many people watched it, but for those of us who tune in on C-SPAN, it's great to listen to them like read their own earmarks as they go over it, like $50 million for my bridge in my uh, district there. And it was just, it was a nice, it was a rarity. Um, I know it didn't change anything. Obviously it didn't change their minds, still signed off on it anyway, but it was great to at least have those clips. So that way it's like, oh, if you want to listen to it instead of read, uh, their little earmark plans. You can actually do that. So the Wall Street Journal had a great breakdown on this. About $825 billion is for relief, actual COVID relief, and about $1 trillion is for corporate and special interests. So actually, the majority of this is going to corporate and special interests. Now, here's the problem, the way monetary supply works. And I wasn't into economics. I got into it like five years ago and then I couldn't stop reading. I just read and read and read. And there's a reason people get so passionate about the subject of economics because you'll you'll see something where before you would have just been like, eh, I'm sure they know what they're doing or eh, I'm sure this will all work itself out. And there's smarter people than me in charge. And then you read it and you're like, oh my goodness, I see exactly what's happening. I know what they're talking about. Monetary supply, the way it works is it affects price. Prices adjust based to the amount of currency in the system. So the problem when you give more money to some people and a little bit of money to you, you actually come out a net behind. And in the, in the immediate interim, you'll feel like, hey, like Brian said, I'm going to go buy a speaker. I'm going to go buy a TV. This thing really helped me. But what happens is it's going to be outpaced by your rent prices, your mortgage prices uh, for those who are unadjustables. Um you know, uh, food prices, a lot of the common ones that shoot up real quick are, are food and staples, uh, clothing. Um, the, these are ones that, that shoot up faster than others. And so it actually turns out as a net negative so long as other people are receiving more money than you. Now, I am with Jordan. I understand that there's, well, I shouldn't say entirely, but I, I'm right between you two. But I am with Jordan in the area that this is... Um, something that does need some balance. It is hard to say, like, let's just destroy the Fed today and then wake up tomorrow and everything will be fine. That's a rough process. We've actually seen in the world when you look in like the last hundred years when countries have gone under, under, it's because something has happened. Now, is that process pretty or is it very ugly? It is usually very ugly. Now, I am a huge believer in the free market, but there's a reason I associate with the Libertarian Party and um, get involved and I vote and I get involved with politics, even though I am an anarchist, because I do believe that there is a de-escalation that is required for it not to just look completely ugly. Now, I'll take it if there's a collapse and do my best, um, but there is a cultural change that kind of needs to occur where we take care of other people. Problem is that culture is not going to happen with bills like this. In fact, it's going to, it is more and more that trickle down, top down, I gave it to the corporate people and hopefully some of that makes its way to the people down below. Um, it rarely does. And so that is the, that's kind of the issue that I have with this whole thing. Bills like this, people are happy, understand people are hurting. This kind of comes um, too often. I find my fellow libertarians kind of come at this from like a brutalist angle, which is, you know, Hey, they're suffering. Who cares? That's not my problem. Not my business. That's on them. Um, I'm more of a mutual aid guy where we kind of take care of each other when things are hurting. However, this is like the dumbest way to take care of other people. It's in a way that is going to hurt these exact same people in the long run. So um, I guess we'll just break it down in discussion. I mean, did, did anybody say anything that uh, you took issue with? No, you know, realistically, <clears throat> the thing is this, 
when you look at how this money's being spent by people, and it's okay, they can spend on whatever they want. I, I honestly think that if you get $1,400 and you want to spend it on the hookers and blow, that's your choice. Okay, live your life. Um, do I think maybe you should do more smart things? Like I've got a couple of kids that are taking their stimulus money, saving it for a house, pay, a house down payment, which, which is great. I, I think that's a great idea. But let's look at the economic, I'll call it economic literacy of some people. The people that aren't paying their rent are going out and they aren't saving that money for a new, you know, most likely. Okay, There are some that will. People that aren't paying rent are, are on eviction moratoriums. They're not saving that money. They're going to get booted out and they're going to be in big trouble. But what's it doing right now to the entire network, entire rental network? It can't find anything. Right. You know, nobody can get booted out. Landlords are getting out of the business because they're going, I can't literally make any money because I have this guy living here that's not paying rent. So all of a sudden, the the people that are looking are all of a sudden looking at rents that are going up 10% a month. Now, if that, if that was happening on a on a national scale across the board, that type of inflation... We'd, we'd look like we'd look like freaking Zimbabwe or Venezuela in a couple of years. So there's a lot of things going on that government's getting in between of the natural process. And the cool thing about it is, is that a lot more people are seeing it. And that's the great thing about being a libertarian. You can sit there and go, look, they're, they're screwing this up. And you see this happening. And people that are diehard Democrats are going, yeah, that's a pretty awful thing going on. And he's like, What's going to happen when this all releases? <laughs> yeah. You're either going to stay up there or it's going to plummet and there's going to be a huge drain on, on supply. What's going to happen after that? And I think I think doing postmortem analyses like this is what we need to do to like talk through, for instance, you know, I, I, we're, this is a perfect example of the law of unintended consequences. You know, like the 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 intention going into this was let's keep a lot of people from being thrown on the street. But the 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 actual outcome is a lot of people can't find housing. Um, because now they've created a shortage. So, you know, you've created, it's, you know, the government uh, masquerading uh, as a, uh, or it's a disease masquerading as its own cure, um, you know, where now it's saying, now we need to come in and, and fix the problem. I think what's on us is to say things like, well, what if we had a mutual aid system in place before this went down? And let's say that people were part of a mutual aid um society and then immediately had rent assistance through this mutual aid society. Well, then they would be paying their rent with the assistance of that mutual aid society. The government would have never swooped in and it's suspended any kind of evictions or anything like that. So, so, you know, it, you almost, I think the onus is on us to, even though it's a little bit Pollyanna and kind of, you know, this perfect world that doesn't exist, but we have to kind of say like, well, this is how it could exist. Yes, it doesn't exist today. And yes, maybe we have to rely on the government, you know, get making these direct cash payments to people to kind of, you know, get us by. Um, but now we need to go back and look at this. Now is where we go back and we advertise to your point, Hody. This is how much of this actually went to corporations and special interests. And this is how much, you know, is not actually going to benefit people. One interesting thing that we haven't brought up yet that is a, an impact of cash infusions and why we don't see the sort of hyperinflation that normally um, like if you just look at what's getting done by the Fed, for instance, and putting money into into 
um, you know, the the financial markets. We don't see the kind of uh, 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 inflation, perhaps, in the retail sector because of the time value of money. And that's that's a very kind of interesting thing to look in in all of this is that um, oftentimes because that money gets infused in like on the Fed side in financial markets, a lot of times it takes a long time for that to trickle down through the financial markets and intermediate markets and then ultimately down to like the consumer good markets. And the the interesting thing about this, though, and, and, and the advantage that that gives to Wall Street is Wall Street, when they make their investments with that new money being infused to them, they get to make those investments at the present value of money before yep. all everybody realizes, you know, hey, we've, <laughs> we've, in, we've flooded in these new dollars and now each dollar is worth that much less. So now the interesting thing here is now the average American, in some cases, is getting that present time value spend. Uh, now, in, in some cases, it's in the retail sector and, you know, PS5s are going out of stock and things like that. But but I, I think it's just kind of an interesting phenomenon where it's it's kind of shifting the balance a little bit. But yeah, you know, you brought up early and I want to bring this up with housing because I don't want to be too down on the free market here and say, oh, we didn't do well enough. The problem is when somebody is taking like 50 percent of I mean, the majority of the way money gets entered into the system is through a loan. So already right off the bat, we owe the Fed immediately as soon as the money enters the system. What happens to those debts? Well, these companies want to recoup their losses. So down and down the chain it goes. And ultimately, we're the ones that end up, people on the bottom end up having to pay back that loan to the Fed and the people on the top. Now, the, the, so the real issue here is the, these are artificial, these are artificially done. And so it's hard because I, I feel for mutual aid people, it was like, man, I could give so much more if there weren't all of these roadblocks. So it's hard when you have this state that is growing to get a mutual aid society, which would necessarily have to shrink the more that other side grows because they require more food. Whereas we want this food here, you know, we should still try to give it as much as we can. It's that it's worth that fight. Um, the problem with art, artificial, you talk about shortage of housing. There's no shortage of housing, first of all. And I know that you know this. I'm going to explain this real quick here. What happens when you have an excess of a product? That excess product becomes free, right? This is just, that's how the, that's how a free market works. That's just, if you observe people in nature, um, in economics, they call this like the Jacques Cousteau situation, you know, when you have uh, three houses and only two people on the island, the, the housing is then worth nothing. We have too many houses and not enough people to live in those houses. And so what we've done is we've created an artificial system to keep those expensive. When people talk about that, that housing bubble, that's exactly it. I had no idea what the bubble was like until like eight years after the bubble burst. I was even working in mortgage at the time. I just didn't know about it. And then I realized what it was. And I'm like, okay, so that's what the bubble is. Keeping housing expensive, or at least at a certain price, which some people might say is cheap. Some people might say is expensive, but it's what the you know Fed thinks is the ideal economy. What, what you know, our politicians believe it should be the cost of housing, even though there's too much of it. Financial, social it. engineering. Well, right. Well, hang on. Go ahead. Go ahead. How, housing is a very local market. So Southern California, yes, there's a housing shortage because the government's come in and said, yeah, we have all these lovely areas that really nobody goes to, but because we want to preserve them, no one can build there. Or they change the laws to basically say, look, we'll go ahead and let you build there, but your property taxes now are going to be like for the first five years, first seven years will be a minimal amount. But seven years from now, because of all the infrastructure we built, we're going to hit you with such a high property tax that no one's going to want to live there. No one's going to want to leave. 
And it's a perverse, inverse relationship. The more property value goes up, the more property tax you get, the more people have to make. And it cycles and it just goes through this over and over. Now, you look at areas that didn't have these huge gains. It didn't have a 50% gain in value over the last seven years, which is absolutely ridiculous. There's that, that's, that shouldn't happen like here in flyover country. Um, we've had modest gains of like 10% over that time frame. But guess what? That's now not happening. My house has gone up in value in 10% since the summer. And Mine too. Yeah. That, I mean, it's great for me. I'm sitting here looking at it going, hey, hey, I got an extra 20, 30 grand in equity. But there's no value in reality. It's, yeah, it's artificial. It's yeah, artificial. Right. But, but the, what does it do? Yeah, all of us sit here and just kind of go, oh, yeah, I'm a smart investor. I just have to be here. <laughs> but again, what does that do? They, they get more property taxes because the state of Indiana reassesses on a regular basis. So yep. all of a sudden, my property taxes are going to go up. They're going to get more money, and just kind of perversely, you know, incense them to keep raising market value. But who does that hurt in the end? And it's the poor. It's kind of like cash for clunkers. What did they do? They sat there and took the highest, the, the biggest capital cost of the poor, and said, "Nope, sorry, we're going to take that out of the market. We're going to destroy the used car market. We're going to increase its value by a hundred percent in a matter of a couple months." And, and, and I was like, if you wanted to declare war on the poor, there's number one what I would do to them. So we're now doing number two, which is, hey, that that variable cost maybe you have for rent is kind of fixed. But all of a sudden, guess what? We're going to increase it by 20% here in the next year. Guess what? I mean, here in flyover country, you don't need $15 an hour minimum wage, which then gets back to the whole thing. The Fed shouldn't be doing this. This is a state local issue. And sure. from a libertarian perspective, that is the easiest argument to make to these people to say, look, we don't need $15 hour jobs out here because if you do that, everything's going that high. We're also going to have California prices. We don't want California prices. Right. And, I, and I'm aware I was starting to get a little, I appreciate you stopping me from going full commie and being like, all oh, housing should be free. I, I, I need that check sometimes. Well, you know, I, I, and it is, it is, I think here's the problem is it is a general, I'm making a general national statement. Sure. You're right. absolutely correct. Is this an, is this a local thing? Yes. Uh, some people will pay extra money for their housing you know, even though they could get it free elsewhere because it's better. I mean, you can get free bananas out of the trash or you can get, you know, the fresh bananas in the store. You know, I mean, I, I get that. Sorry, go ahead, Brian. The, the other thing is this, is that housing, though, isn't something that there's a huge supply and you can pick up and move it. If I don't like the store down right. the street, right. it sucks. I go to the store that's five miles away, maybe because it's better. I have a town next to us. I won't name it because they have water issues and stuff like that. And the town is dying. It's a town of three, four thousand people. But it's dying because they can't take care of the infrastructure. There isn't enough tax base there. And you just watch all of our home prices have increased, except for this town. This town has gone down, down, down. And who's living there? People you can afford that. So let's think about that from an economic perspective. And I'm not trying to be a generalist here and saying poor people are awful. But they may make choices that, you know, don't exactly, hey, I don't know if I want to live in this town because, you know, it, it attracts a lot of meth, you know, people or stuff like that. Unfortunately, that's what happens. Meth people. You can tell Brian's the right, right, righty of the group, right? <laughs> no, it, reality. And, you know, it's like low-income housing. I, I don't have a problem with low-income housing. I really don't. I just hate when the government walks in and says, guess what? We're going to drop it right here. And you're like, this really doesn't fix anything. You just now just took these people's property values and nuked them. They're going to leave and they're going to take their money elsewhere. 
you know, whatever they can get and you're going to create all sorts of panic. So I, I'll shut up at this point, but. <laughs> well, the, the one, the one, the whole point. <laughs> <laughs> One point I'll, I'll just make to that is a lot of times the low-income housing uh, kind of comes in because of the NIMBY crowd, you know, the not in my backyard, using yeah. the existing zoning infrastructure to like so clamp down that then they come in and say, okay, fine, we're putting in low-income housing here or something. So, you know, again, it's, it's I think we have to be careful to look back at, you know, where, where were the incursions by government that caused, you know, that seed of the problem and caused that unintended consequence. I think your your cash for clunkers example is a phenomenal one of you know the law intended of unintended consequences. And this is where I think we're in an ideal time now where we can, you know, kind of collectively, kind of in a crowdsourced fashion, start tracking those unintended consequences. Like theoretically, what are these price increases that we're seeing? You know, like I think honestly. I would I think a lot of economists would probably agree that the consumer price index is heavily skewed and it's not, you know, an appropriate basket of goods. It doesn't even consider housing as, you know, a component. And and I mean, it's insane. And so, you know, we need to be looking at things like intermediate good prices and, and things like housing. And and I think now is the time where maybe collectively, you know, can we start tracking some of these things in more crowdsourced fashion, like as it's playing out? so that we have some real data that we can point to and and go back and say, hey, guys, we said this would happen. Sure enough, it's happening. Like, look at this play out in real time. Right. I agree. Yeah. I mean, so to bring this back to like, and we, I guess we have been tangentially talking about the stimulus a lot, but these are the problems like, like what Jordan's saying, this is when you expand, when you do things like this, these are things to look out for in the long run. It's, I, I think it's great. We're talking about it now, even though it's already happened. Because, well, I guess and for some people, they're still receiving their checks. Um, I think it's uh, they said what the earliest it was going to be the 17th, but some people got it even before that. So uh, and they just gave it to them early. Just yeah, them. right. And so so we've been, you know, and some people are going to get it. Those without bank accounts, I think, are getting their cards towards the end of the month, something like that. So we're seeing it unfold right now. But even though it's already passed, the reason we talk about it now is because we can say, OK, now it's passed. Here's what to look for. Here's what's yeah. going to happen. You know, and, and I look at a lot of these earmarks and, and my biggest issue here is is so we know one trillion dollars is for, you know, kind of the corporate and special interests. So when we look at those corporate and special interests, you know, and, and, and I Again, I'm, I know I'm putting up the sickle and hammer here, but about like 70% of them, uh, it is for like the biggest corporation in that line of work. So like, you know, when you're looking at like, what they'll do is they they bury it. A uh, great one example I had here, I'm looking up a lot of these right now, is um, yeah, there, there's, oh, here you go, um, th- $3 billion for Amtrak you know, uh, national railroad passenger cards. And, you know, we, we as libertarians love to argue against, you know, public transportation anyhow, but if you're going to do it right, let's say if the, if the government must exist, it should function correctly and well, you know, Hey, spread it amount amongst everybody. Instead, what they do is they give it to the big dog. Who's already the big dog and everybody else who's trying to keep up. What do you think that does to them when the big dog gets so much more money? This has been the problem in agriculture for years. And agriculture again, peaks into this bill, you know, farmers are hurting. And so they'll be like, what, you want to take this away from hurting farmers? When you see that 90% of the bill is given to people who own farms with the last name of Turner and Rockefeller. Okay. <laughs> Maybe it's not about your average Joe farmer. It's about the big farm mills. It's about the, the big guys. And it's not your well, average Joe farmer. 
and, Sorry, and that's why that's why I would say you might not want to paint that with the hammer and the sickle. I'd paint it with the fascists, the fat for fascism, because ultimately, right. if you look at, um, you know, say what the definition of fascism is. So like the definition of socialism is the public ownership of the means of production or, you know, government ownership of the means of production. Maybe that's probably more analogous to your, maybe your Amtrak scenario. I, I where, actually meant you know, to say that I was being the communist. I, okay. Well, all right. No, no, I know. Right, right. I know. I, I get <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry, go no, ahead. I, I, no accusation taken there. Uh, the, sure. the, uh, this was more so, but I'm saying like, w- let's call it what it is. It's not like the Amtrak might be more so socialism, but the giving to those farms where those are private interests that still retain full ownership rights over those means of production of those farms, you know, those aren't government entities. Those are private owners that's right. fascism that's that's well, corporatism i would argue corporatism, you know that, i I'd yeah. probably agree with but I well, fascism light is what i call I, corporatism corporatism or, or even monopolistic competition because when you have let's say like and i was just doing this with my kid on his econ um where you have a number of companies they all do the same thing there's really not much of a difference but look there's competition um, it's, it's a monopolistic competition environment where basically this, the big guys get all this. And then if you're Fred gas station or Fred farmer got news for you, you're going to get bought out by Exxon or, or ADM or Bill Gates or anybody else who is looking at that and going, yeah, you know, I can just file it under my tax, you know, under my corporation and I'll get an extra, uh, quarter mil from the government every year for just owning that piece of land. Yeah. Jordan, I'm glad you used the term fascism because it is what it is. It, it actually, it, it, people don't talk about fascism in terms of economics enough right, right now. We, exactly. we refer to when we talk about being anti-fascist. Most of the time, we think like, oh, what? So like, you hate racism and you, you know, right. and, and all those things. And it's like, okay, but fascism <laughs> is the FDR other was a fascist economically. Right. And I, Go you ahead, know, Brian. It, it's kind of one of those things where you I'm just, about to squish you, but go ahead. I, know, go ahead. <laughs> I just sit there and look at it when I hear the term fascist. It's like when, when I sit there hearing the, 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 the Trump voter who's voted Republican her entire life for 70 years, and she's called a racist because she voted straight ticket Republican like she has for the last 70 years. And, you know, the guy down the street, he's, he's my town council. He's really nice. I'm going to keep voting for him. So I, I think when you use the term fascist and you throw it in there, it's like, yeah, okay, you can say technically it's right, but it's one of those things that falls into you lose people. You lose it's people. inflammatory. Yeah, it admittedly. Yeah. I, I would agree. I think I think, you know, it's, you gotta know your audience. Yeah. I mean, I'm hoping that the audience of, of our listeners would be, you know, more of the nuanced, you know, I, I don't want to make too many assumptions, but uh I mean, discern that, but uh, out there that, that <laughs> immediately when they hear commie or fascist, they right. You know, blinders That's go. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, but hey, I mean, I mean, I guess I'll push back on both of you now. But the thing mm-hmm. that I have is, is fascist economics is a real thing. Like it, it has is. a real history. It was really crafted. It's actually really recent. Like yeah. you know, people are alive when these things were 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 founded and created and put together. And yeah. so we need to understand that like this is this is the this is the comeuppance of that. It, it's it was, when the it people was actually. Were... I, I think it's also worth noting it was the product of two of the most, and this is you know, me speaking as a, as a history major and I rarely get to use this stuff, but of the the two most recently in modern history formed modern States, it's when Germany and 
Italy became true states that, you know, because before that they were, you know, distributed duchies and, and you know, little and, and it in their formation created the the the, you know, the soil in which fascism could spring up with with enthusiasm, enthusiasm. So I think, you know, it's it's an inherent sort of creation of the state. Yep. It, well, and I, it's yeah, it's something. So so you know, Keynes has this idea. Germany's the first one to adopt it. Italy follows suit. Every other country in the world, just so you know, has ended up adopting the exact same national income identity equation. Because while what Germany and Italy did were evil socially, man, we're sure impressed with their economics and how they got back on their feet. Literally, Kinda every like other eugenics. country. Eugenics. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's it's one of those things where we got to say, like, uh, if you're don't be too inflamed by the word fascism, because every country is literally doing it. But you have to know it's also literally fascism. This is the history of it. So and and the reason we talk about what fascist economics are, I do want to get into the the specific what this is, is this is not saying, oh, this is government owned. This is saying this is government guided. And this is what Keynes suggested. This is what the Germans embraced. And this is what, well, I shouldn't say Germans. This is what the Nazis embraced. And and I would, I would say also that there were other countries that were doing this as well. The British, the Royal Crown. Oh, for sure. A lot of business. The French crown directed a lot of business. The Spanish, I mean, you had Franco who directed a lot of it. So corporate big business and, and, political power have always played well with each other. I would say uh, it's kind of a natural evolution of mercantilism in a yeah. way. And some yeah. of those other countries you referenced. Yeah. The reason I, I, I bring those up is pr- the progenitors is because they are the first ones to actually adjust to their economic equation based on this broken window situation. They're, you know, saying let's incentivize war, let's incentivize planes that go straight to the boneyard or jets and bombs. And, you know, the reason we're able to blow up the, the world seven times over with nukes or whatever it is, is because we have an incentive to make the bomb because we've adjusted the equation. And so they are the first ones to actually be like, Hey, I know we're kind of doing it anyway with the mercantilism, but let's make it official. Let's, let's adjust our income identity equation and make it so that this is an official thing that we can do and it works. And so that kind of combined, that kind of married that corporatism and, you know, yeah. and so what it, and so what it is, is the reason we bring this up as fascism and Jordan was correct to do so is because what they are doing is they guide it. They say, they don't need to say like, Hey, you out of business, you private guy out of business, you, you know, big corporate guy, you're in business. You're the one we do business with. They just give more money to the one guy, a little bit to the other guy. So maybe he'll shut up. That little guy will necessarily go away. And then you're only doing business with the big guy. And then you get to turn around and be like, this is what the market wanted. This is the free market, everybody. This is what it looks like, you know, and this is this is what I mean, this is how this is how it happened. And it is a very bad thing. And there's a reason that libertarians tend to be so into economics like this, you know, because this is what we're looking at. This is fascism. And so I I just I want to encourage anybody out there because I have proclaimed even even my center libertarian self. I hate fascism and fascism is a great I know it might perturb some people, but here's the thing. It's a great umbrella for everything I hate, both economically and socially. <laughs> and so a lot falls into it. It might be over-labeling. I see you shaking your head, Brian. I get it. I don't want to turn people off, but I just want the historians to know that, like, or anybody listening, I guess, to know that, like, this is why the term comes up. It's not supposed to be just a derogatory, like everything I hate is fascism, like everything I hate is capitalism or everything I hate is socialism. Like that happens a lot. But there's a reason you'll see a lot of everything I hate is fascism, because a lot of what you hate is probably fascist. (laughs) Go ahead, Brian. Okay. 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 
I, again, this is we're, who are we talking to? If we're talking to libertarians, yes, we can have this discussion. We can circle it around all day long. And, and, and you know, this is fascist, not fascist. This is the same process, though, that we have seen with political power and economic power, and they often go well together. Saddam Hussein was a clear fascist. He was a single-minded ruler who, of course, wasn't the only person running the country. Saddam Hussein didn't walk in and runs everything from building sarin gas bombs, whatever else, to running, to taking, paying your water bill. It's a whole group of people that go up and support him, either out of, I want to be just like him or close to him, or he's going to shoot me and my entire family. And that's the key difference there, I think, when you get into a fascist type of environment. You can look at Putin. Putin is the poster child for fascism and corrupt government. But he's also the guy who, as you said, Hody, well, this guy gets a little less, this guy gets a little bit more. That's not what happens. Putin, when you tick him off, say something wrong or something like that, guess what happens? You suddenly get investigated for tax evasion. Uh Uh-oh. Was that the uh, stop, Brian? Oh, no, that's just when you say something bad about Putin, you disappear. Silence now? Yeah. <laughs> Get the poison underwear. Yeah. At the very least. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when, do you guys remember um, when Putin uh, he was with Trump and somebody, uh, there was a reporter asked him and was like, well, what about all your political opponents who have kind of disappeared? And his response to me, like, chilled me to the bone. I, I don't feel like it got enough media coverage. But I remember he was like, ah, you guys disappear people all the time. Like, look at what you did with Martin Luther King Jr. I don't really care about that. So instead of saying, like, no, I don't kill my political opponents. They have accidents. He's like, eh, you do it too. I don't care. Like, I'm in America wow. right now. You guys know what that's like. I was like, <gasps> Uh, let's, let's take this in perspective here, okay? Private okay. citizen Donald Trump says that now. Now, when he was president, different story. Private citizen De- Donald Trump says this now. Private citizen Bill Gates, private citizen Warren Buffett. Any of them say that in this country, there's no power to it. If anything, people are going to go, dude, you uh, okay? Uh, do we need to take you into the stroke clinic or something? <laughs> um, but But that's the difference there. Putin and his colleagues have that political power. They have the ability to trump up charges. Trump loves that. Mm-hmm. Uh, of fighting for tax evasion. I mean, how many people have gone into jail and gulags and stuff for that were Putin's buddies until he ticked, you know, somebody ticked him off and all of a sudden you're off to the gulag. It's right. It's the same shit. Excuse my language. Well, we, all, I, I, <laughs> now we got the explicit <laughs> label. Thanks. Go ahead, George. <laughs> well, I would just say like Putin kind of has a point. Um, like, uh, for instance, like, so, uh, and what I mean by that is, um, so let, let's talk about weaponization of government, uh, uh, let's talk about weaponization of the IRS historically. Let's talk about how FDR weaponized the IRS against the most prominent black, uh, uh, spokesperson essentially in the country at the time, um, Joe Lewis. Um, who was uh, a very um, outspoken um, Republican supporter at the time. And FDR essentially saw an opportunity to sick the IRS on him. And um, he uh, basically ended up um, draining Joe Lewis. You know, he, you know, he hadn't been on top of his, his filings apparently. And, and like he paid a lot of penalties and interest. He ended up basically later in his life towards 
near death, you know, eventually he did die from it, but from um, uh, his long-term brain injuries from having been a fighter, he, he died as a greeter at a Las Vegas casino so the IRS could garnish his wages. Yep. Um, and, and so he could pay back that debt. And there's a much bigger history of um functions like the irs being weaponized against individuals than i think we tend to acknowledge now does it go as far as killing and disappearing a person potentially not but is it that much worse if it completely depletes a guy's ability to you know work and live um i mean it's not that far off so i mean as bad as as and as shocking as that might have been i think it's an important point of uh, or to encourage some introspection on part of us as americans on just how much these different government institutions get weaponized today and and why it's so dangerous that they exist in the first place for that reason because no matter who is in the controls they constantly have this entire arsenal of government agencies that they can weaponize against anybody that they want to this is going to be the worst podcast for Hody because we're agreeing on so much stuff. <laughs> right. The thing is, it always happens. Like, I think the thing is, there is a lot to agree with here. And we might have, like, difference in – I find with right and left libertarians, it's a difference of, like, priority on these things. So, yeah. like, I think when we talk about something like stimulus, that's when the righties tend to come out of the woodwork, right? They're, they're like, this is terrible, this is spending, this is whatever. And then, you know, when, you know, Trump says – the China virus. That's when all the lefties are like, this is going to get people killed, this, that, and the other, yeah. everything like that. Anyway, guys, like I, I, where we agreed on, uh, on a lot of stuff, but that was a great, I guess, breakdown of the stimulus. I, I hope you learned something. If you're, if you're tuning in, if you had something to add, please comment, you know, please, please share it around. Um, okay. So I, I did want to talk, uh, we're going to do the piece of my mind segment now, and I, and I will start by giving you both a piece of my mind. And I have so much on my mind. Originally, I wanted to talk about uh, the Weird Libertarians Facebook group got uh, zucked. We got we got the squish, and we are the most moderate. <laughs> we, we're, we're the one it's place you can have this podcast. School. It's right, not it's accessible. not accessible. Yeah. Right, but, but even then, like, <laughs> it, 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 it's one of those that's encouraging of different, of right and left values. This is kind of the one po- the one place I can do this podcast because other networks have their audience and their audience wants that wants to be fed, wants that massage. This is kind of the one place where I can say it's okay that this person's a left libertarian, it's okay that this person's a right libertarian, this person's center libertarian. We're all going to get along. Whereas most of them are right libertarians, left libertarians and they just feed that. And so the wall was kind of we're libertarians is like the one place where you can come together and be like, you know, I want to be challenged on my ideas. Chris actively seeks diversity. We look for libertarian socialists. We look for anarcho capitalists. We look for these people with these differing values. We, I remember what we had the, uh, we, we published the border control uh, thing. We, we sought out people who we didn't have enough people who favored border control that were libertarians. So we sought them out so that they could get published because we thought all perspectives were important on this issue. And it's one of those, it's like, we seek that diversity. We are very mellow. We're very, um, you know, we encourage respectful debate. And the fact that we got squished is kind of a step in the wrong direction 
for these social media companies. I do believe it will be the undoing of places like YouTube and Facebook because people will go somewhere else. And that includes things like We're Libertarians because ultimately there's a huge audience for this type of debate. That's why they squish it. You know, this is why... Um, because, you know, we get a little popular and it's like, well, I don't want this respectful discourse. People are incentivized for outrage. We want this, this anger. Um, I'm going to go ahead and give a second piece of my mind too. just keep, keep us in your thoughts and prayers, please. Uh, we are libertarians. We're going through a rough time, but we are doing better. Um, you might notice I have two new, uh, co-hosts with me this week. Um, it, it's a lesson that right and, liber- right and left libertarians sometimes can't get along. Aaron and Chris kind of had a, a little bit of a blow up, a little bit of a fight, and um, they're working that out right now. <laughs> and so we, we should see Aaron back soon um, and, and uh, you know, maybe Galt, but like they got to they gotta patch things up real quick here. Um, these are tough conversations to have, and we need a place to have them. Otherwise, they kind of fester and they become, you know, they, they become divisive. Um, what I will end up doing, I, I know I'm cheating and I'm giving two pieces of my mind, but I do want to talk about this. Last week I talked about uh, Coke and their racism. Um, and I boldly said that this is a racist statement against white people. And it, it was, and I don't feel bad about that. But here's the other side of the coin. If you hear somebody talking about Coke, 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 and haven't once mentioned Trump, talk about the China virus. Here's the problem here. I don't know if anybody got killed because Coke told people to be less white and they were racist again. And they went on to say like, no, but be less white. I mean, be less of a jerk. And it's like, well, that's, that's extra racist. You're doubling down on your racism now. Okay. I don't know that anybody got killed. It's probably made people feel bad. I know it makes me feel bad as it should. I think if you're a white person and you're actually paying attention and you're engaging the way you should with these diversity training courses, that should make you feel bad, right? If you're, if you're taking these to heart, here's the problem. That might be more an egregious offense of racism than Donald Trump constantly calling it the China virus, constantly insisting like, no, it came from China and passing the blame around to, to these Chinese people, right? That did it. But here, here's, the, here's the issue, and here's why you have to call out both. The Coke one might be a more egregious offense, but people are getting killed because of the other one. And it was announced at the time. And, and, and here's the thing. This is, this, people said people are going to get killed and violence is going to be done towards them. I'll admit that I was one of those who didn't believe that at the time. I was like, people, come on. I mean, I didn't like it. You can remember when his notes, he actually crossed out where it said like COVID-19 coronavirus and he wrote in China virus because that's what he wanted to say, right? Like he wanted to be a jerk, right? And to me, I was just like, this is him being a jerk, but I don't think any, look, I was wrong, okay? People are getting killed over it. Violence against Asian Americans is up, I think 150% hate crimes went from like 2000 to like 3,800 on Asian Americans. Okay, it happened. Now, what do we do? We have to condemn that racism as well. Okay. You got, you got to do it. I'm just telling you, like, if you want to be a consistently anti-racist person, which I encourage you all to be, you've got to call both these out. Otherwise you just have this obvious skew, you know? And, and, and I think for me, this is, this is me saying it. I, I made a post about it. We always get more backlash. I don't even like talking about racial stuff. So I know two weeks in a row here, I am peace of my mind talking about racial stuff. I don't like it. I, I, I don't enjoy talking about it because I want us to be unified. I look forward to a day when I won't, when I will just be like this person and race is just 
goes away as a social construct entirely because that's all it is, is this artificial social construct. And just, we can just talk as people, but the problem is, is we're not there right now and we don't solve a cancer by ignoring cancer. We have to address the cancer. We have to kill the cancer. When that cancer is gone, we can stop talking about the cancer. So when this, this violence is done to these Asian Americans, I have to say this, it's not enough for us to just not be racist to Asian Americans. We can say like, well, that's not my fault. Okay. But that's not keeping them alive as, especially on the weird libertarians network. We are so big on this response on personal responsibility and accountability to yourself and to the people around you. Right. And so if people around you are being hurt, if we see that hurt and we see this escalation in violence, it, it, it be, we have to say something. You can argue that it's not as big an issue as the Fed or that, you know, this war with Syria is going to end up being a bigger deal. Okay. I, I don't like comparing problems because if you're a dead person has been killed because of a hate crime, that's your biggest issue is being murdered. Okay. So I get it. If there's a 1% tax increase, you're going to be mad about it. If there's a 1% increase in hate crimes, you should be mad about it, right? This is like 150% increase in hate crimes. You should be super mad about it. And so it's it just, I know I'm kind of rambling here, but that is, I just got to say it because I think you will do so much credibility with yourself in your political discourse. If you can call out both of these kinds of racism boldly and unafraid because it is important. People's lives are hinging upon it. And it does establish with your friends to be like, you know what? I, I consider that guy like some right leaning guy when he went off on Coke, but now here he is standing with Asian Americans. You do, you, you just bolster your credibility, you know, and vice versa. Somebody's going to think you're a left-wing nut job when you just, oh, he's probably just some lefty gets all angry when Asians, but he thinks white people to blame for everything. Cause that's the backlash I got when I stood with the, you know, when I, I said my supporters for the Asian Americans and he was like, Oh, it's all white people's fault. And it's like, yeah, I'm not saying that. I'm just, you know, you get, you, people want to compartmentalize you. And the only way to be out of that compartment, we can't control other people's perspectives, but we can certainly just persuade them one way or the other. And for me, this is the way we do that is to, to get out of that compartment is by taking what's good from both sides and being like, look, I stand against racism when it's against white people, black people, Asian people, doesn't matter. I'm against racism all the time. And if I see it, I'm going to call it out. And that's how anti-racism works. Um, your guys' thoughts on that. All right, Jordan. Whichever way. Um, sure. Uh, Hody, I mean, I understand. And the, the big question is, and can you trace the increase? You, you can sit there and say, hey, look, math-wise, this all lines up. Trump said this. This started happening. But the question comes down to, it, is it tied to that? Are we getting better reporting? Are we getting – there's a lot of caveats in that. And I'm not downplaying it. I'm not saying it. Definitely any uptick in any sort of death is something that should be seriously t- taken a look at. But we know the government and we know that the media loves to stir things up and not saying this is something that, that is, that is uh, not real and not stirring up. But look what Cuomo did. Look what all these people did. And, and honestly, I, if, I was, if I was Cuomo and I knew that my orders killed, you know, 15,000 people, which is way more than what has been reported, not diminishing their deaths. But I'm saying there's so much going on. 
and our media finds something and sticks with it. And, and sometimes it's great, but like the Pentagon Papers, you know, the, you know, all that stuff, that's not happening. We're finding people getting upset because Coke put out a, a, a thing that said be less white, which, you know, how do I tell my, my 17 or my 18 year old, hey, you need to be less you. You know, it's, it, it, it changed around. But what it gets back to is this. Yes, my, my, my entire phrase about libertarians is always don't be an asshole. You know, that, that's judgmental. And, and you got to kind of look at that and say, all right, what, what makes me an asshole? Well, if you're being racist against people because of this, you're probably an asshole. So don't be that asshole. Be that person that you hear somebody say something awful, go out and say, hey, don't say that. That's kind of hurtful. Imagine if I said this to you, and, and I've just done that recently uh, with somebody that I love very much and tried to correct. But you also have to realize there are some people that just aren't going to change. Oprah is one that said it. Racism is going to die one of these days because the people, the, the young kids are growing up into, they're realizing that that's not how society should run. But a lot of the people that are hardcore racist, I mean, there are some out there. Yes, they're, they're waving Trump Confederate flags. This is my culture. Fine, fine, wave it, wave the flag, do whatever you want, because I'd rather see you waving that flag and being an idiot than being told, shut up, you're wrong, and and, and then just hiding it and going into, you know, wherever they are to stew and get angry, because those are the ones you got to really want, be concerned about, it's the ones that get angry at everything that goes on. And I kind of went off on a tangent there, I apologize, but I, it's just in the end, it's like, there's definitely racism in this country. There's racism all around the world. The United States does not have the monopoly on racism. You go to China, you go to India. It's a hundred times. Yeah, oh, France. I mean, Western Europe is one of the most racist places you can go in, in the world easily. Uh, the, and, and part of it is they're just so homogenous, you know, that they don't have a lot of people that around. Um, there's a lot a lot you can read into just the anti-Semitism in Western Europe. That, uh, but I, I think the, the big reaction I, I want to make to you, Hody, on that is is a very pragmatic one. And this is that if we, as many of us say, I know, you know, this was kind of, I think, the, the tagline of the free state project, but the whole idea of like achieving liberty in our lifetime. Like if we want to see yeah. a freer society for, on a pragmatic level, we got to get a whole lot more inclusive. Yep. We have to engage and make people of other cultures feel comfortable associating with us. Because if you do the math, we're not going to get a quorum if we're just going after, you know, the paleocons and stuff like that's not going to get us to the point we need to get enough people, you know, in that critical mass of liberty believers. We have to engage with other groups and the only way to break down that door and remove the most critical barrier possible with those other groups is by making sure that they know we're going to hold people accountable that try to do them harm, whether that is physically or by just being a real asshole to them. As Brian said, like, we, I think we need to preserve the, the idea of disassociation and boycott and the boycott, you know, as a, a, a positive thing. I mean, that is how um, bad things get solved and, you know, edged out of societies in a free and open market is through disassociation and by and boycotts. And, and so I, I just think that um, to your point, like 
we need to be if we you know we can't control what the likes of trump and everybody else do but we as libertarians can control what we say and i think it is important that we make explicit comments that say that person is an asshole and shouldn't say those things and as such i you know they might say other things that are kind of good but i don't really want to associate with them because they're doing more alienation than recruitment at this point Right. It's, it's, and there's, there's a great, and I guess I'm really going to show my center libertarian colors on this one. There is a great balance here because I think it, it, we have to take this, play this by ear and really use your conscience and use your, your judgment on this one because some people do need to be, just be blocked, be cast out, just be like, you know what? You are, you're committed to your cause. I'm done with you. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm not going to rent my house to you and let you do that. I'm not going to do business with you. I choose to voluntarily disassociate with you because you are too far gone. That being said, I do agree with what Brian said. And this is not just shutting people up. Right. This, it's about giving them a pathway out. It's to so reform. important. Right. I think, it, I, I think when people find themselves in racist circles a lot. Now, there's some people who wave it loud and proud. And in that case... All right. You know what? You're proud of it. See ya. You know, but there's some people who find themselves there. And I think there's a way to tell. Like I said, there's not really you have to use judgment on this one. I mean, one of the big things with me is like an anarchist is I just don't believe there's a certain no one law is going to perfectly do anything. We have judgment can never be supplanted. So we have to use our personal judgment, meet with these people, you know, to say like, hey, I believe I can reach this person and get them out. Um AOC, I'll give her some props. And unfortunately she's gone back on this, but like two years ago, she said, um, like if we, when we meet somebody who's found themselves in racist circles, be like, let me give you a new circle to be a part of. And this is, this is tough because I think there's the two parts of the paleocon strategy. And, um, uh, on one hand, I uh, <laughs> the the idea for some people behind the paleocon strategy was to take over the libertarian party and make them pay conservatives, right? Make them, you know, and, and this is and you know that that was kind of like the Lou Rockwell, like just be like, hey, look, the it all started what when the Republicans offered amnesty, right? And they're like, all right, well, the Democrats are okay with letting people in, the Republicans are okay with letting people in. Maybe we can get the libertarians to stop. Now, some people. Uh, some libertarians were like, yeah, let's pretend and then bait and switch them. Right. right. And then they get in here and then it's like, oh, to accept these libertarian values, open borders is a huge part of that. Read anything by Mises or Heisek, Hayek, and you'll realize that that is a huge part of like free markets is free movement. And they're going to end up having to do that. On the other hand, there are there are bad actors who say, let's get these bad people in with their bad views. And instead of challenging them on their bad views, let's encourage them on their bad views. No, 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 no. Let, let's try it. Let, let's work on them. You know, we still want to work on them. I'm not saying, you know, I think there tends to be these visceral reactions when somebody says something that's not libertarian in a libertarian circle to either crucify them and kick them out or to embrace them and everything that they said is good as opposed to just like, hey, man, I really just want to give you a check on this one. Right. You know, there's a reason libertarians, there's a reason this is our platform. There's a reason libertarians tend to think this. Can we talk about it for a minute? I think more people than you think are actually amenable to this kind of wisdom. I think if you think more people are not, you spend too much time on social media because that is when people yes. are at their most, you're behind that. You've got that anonymity. You've got that no confrontation, even if you and do. it's performative. Use... You have yes. this performative excommunication you know, yes. of this person that I will, they were no longer welcome here, you know? And, and <laughs> yeah. I think that's the thing that we have to, wa- wa- what we have to watch against is 
are you looking to redeem and keep that person who could be a great apostate for the cause, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, over time? If so, reach out to that person one on one. Don't like post this big performative call out. But the question is, are they too far gone? You know, and this is where we need to kind of develop a litmus test or something for the paleocons of saying like, okay, are they hard and fast? Like, do they have these baked in views that are immutable that are going to be poisonous to the cause long term? Or are, do they, is, is there passion elsewhere? And is that more of like a fringe thing that they picked up as part of the greater paleocon movement that we can move them on? And that, and I think yeah. we need to, we need to kind of do a bit more of a triage, you know, of, of these people and figuring out like, you know, are they redeemable? Cause obviously we want them if they are, it's just, we aren't very good at walking them through, you know, that transition of, yeah. of getting them in. But mm-hmm. and, and so I, I don't know if, if this might be a good segue into my piece of my mind. Uh, and, and I don't know, Hody, this this is kind of doubling down on the whole um, racism uh, topic here. Uh, but uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about Stephen Crowder's recent outburst on his on his show, um, which I think was a complete removal of the mask when it comes to uh this whole um sort of veneer that these these guys put out there um about saying oh i'm just asking questions you know obviously john oliver had a great takedown of uh of tucker carlson on this if anybody wants to to look that up um but I think um, what it ultimately comes down to is uh, these guys like Crowder keep hiding behind this argument that I'm just asking questions. You don't know I'm a racist. I'm not a racist. I didn't say I was racist. And what it dawned on me was they are demanding the criminal court standard of judgment for themselves, meaning beyond a shadow of a doubt, you need to be able to show the smoking gun that shows I stabbed a black person and threw them, you know, like like (laughs) you need to, it's this unbelievable standard that they're holding themselves to. Now, the, the irony is whenever they talk about anything about anything else, they're holding themselves to the civil court standard of the preponderance of evidence. What does it seem like is going on? here what does it look like these people are doing and so just to to talk a little bit about about what he said which is really horrific and if anybody wants to go look at it just search for crowder black farmers because basically the issue at hand was he's the the usda has been essentially discriminating against black farmers and and black farmers have come out and said you know we are seeing the systemic discrimination now as a libertarian my first thought is if the government is a party in a disagreement, I'm going with the non-governmental party as the probable <laughs> winner that I'm going to support, you know, and saying that right. the USDA is probably doing screwed up stuff. And, 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 but no, what does Crowder do? He pulls up an image of, of, of it, uh, like the picture American Gothic with two gangster heads put on it essentially and says that, why are these people coming out and wanting to take our lands? Like, it's not like we're going to Detroit and looking at their dirt and saying that, uh, oh, this is great for, for uh, planting. Oh, no, it's not because it has too much meth in it. So, like, he instantly do this, like, inner city black people are evil, rural white people are good. Like, I mean, it's like no pretense, no, like, just 
instantly gets down to like, and you have these, these, you know, other old white guys chiming in like, yeah. And whenever you go down town and in the meth areas, there's just teeth everywhere too. Don't forget about the teeth. I'm just like in shock watching this. And, and what I really want to get to though, is like, yeah, Crowder after this might say, I was just making a joke. I was just saying this, but what does the preponderance of evidence say about Steven Crowder? What does the preponderance of evidence say about Tucker Carlson and about who he brings on his show and decides the platform and who Steven Crowder decides the platform? I mean, I think we need to switch the um, the standard of, of guilt, essentially, uh, that we use for these folks and not allow them to force this into this criminal standard. The preponderance of evidence are is that these guys are white supremacists and they are spouting white supremacy uh, from their platforms. And I think it's time to boycott them. And I, I think what that means is even going as far as like not using that Crowder meme anymore. Like, let's keep his likeness out of the ether as much as possible. Like, and I think it's on us for to come out and say, yeah, that guy's a white supremacist. Yeah, at times he has said, I'm a libertarian or I support libertarian causes or same thing with Tucker Carlson. But they are not representative of who we are, you know, and I think we need to be able to take clear stances on some of these people who say, I will not reform. I will double down on what I said. And I will say, no, you know, people of color have no place in the liberty movement. I mean, we need to be willing to completely cut those people loose. Now, it's different. You know, go back to your earlier point, Hody. If we're talking about somebody who's new to the liberty movement, who's a baby libertarian, maybe even somebody who's like a more intermediate person, but who hasn't evidenced years worth of a willingness to double down on their beliefs. And, you know, even if they're just kind of skirting on the edges of saying racist stuff, like there's still, again, that preponderance of evidence over a long term period. And so I think um, although I absolutely am with you when I say, you know, if you see somebody exhibiting those kinds of behaviors, I, I've saw somebody post something that was very transphobic that was from high school. I, they put, pulled down the post. I reached out to him um, personally though. And I was like, Hey, like, you know, the person you posted this about, it was about a celebrity, like it's never going to see this, mm -hmm. but somebody you might, you love, you know, might, yeah. and this is going to be a clear signal to that person that, you're not a safe person to go to if they're ever facing some sort of, you know, identity crisis or something like that. Like, you know, so you, you have to think about it, you know, pragmatically as well. And just think about, you know, it, can I get this person in? Can I talk them through this issue? Can I help them see how this one piece of their portfolio of thoughts is poisonous to their overall thoughts and the overall liberty movement? Or do I just need to clearly disassociate with them? And I would say at this point, when it comes to people like Crowder, when it comes to people like Tucker, Tucker Carlson, we have to clearly cut the cord with those people. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> okay. Um, interesting point. And I was thinking about all this throughout the entire process. So are people redeemable? First question. Do we see people as redeemable or not redeemable? If they have views that we see as irredeemable, are those people still redeemable in some way? Because I've known people that have been insanely racist. I've seen people change over the years. I have personally changed myself, not on racism, but on gay marriage. I can go back to my thoughts on gay marriage when it first started. But, but this is where I kind of want to get the discussion on this. Think about the gay marriage debate. Think about all the laws that were passed. 
10 years ago, you had Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama saying marriage is between a man and a woman. Look what has changed in the last decade on that. And there were people that were upset and there were people that really got upset about that. But you didn't hear people screaming about everybody that doesn't like gay marriage is a homophobe. Okay. I, you know, I have lots of gay friends, Mm. Uh, you know, but the thing was this, I always sat there and looked at it and I went, you know, there's a couple of things that it opens doors for. And a friend of mine said, so what? And I'm like, you know what? You're right. So what? Now, if he would have came to me because I said, yeah, you know, I'm not really for gay marriage back in 2008. He would, you know, does that mean you shut me out? Does that mean what am I going to do with my thoughts? If we go, nope, we want nothing to do with you. We're pulling the plug. Go away because you're a bad person. So all of a sudden that shuts down that conversation. So this gets me to my next point here on when it comes to racism. And one person comes to mind. Who has changed the most racist people in the United States, had them walk away from their horribly racist ideals? And the one guy that keeps coming to mind is Daryl Davis, the musician. What has he done? Has he gone up and said, nope, I'm not playing with you. I'm disconnecting. He's gone to people that, have, that would literally shoot him on sight and say, I just want to talk. And yes, there are people that he's tried talking to and just hasn't worked. Okay. And there are people that are going to be set into their ways, but they've been set in their ways for 20 years, 30 years. This is how my mom and dad taught me. This is how my grandparents talk. This is how, you know, I have relatives that still say things that weren't racist. 50 years ago, 60 years ago, they still say things. And I go, you got to, you know, you can't really say that in public anymore. But they're old. They're not going to change 60 years of behavior. And that's where this kind of whole thing goes to. If you're disconnecting, you've got to make sure that person and that thought is completely irredeemable, that there's no chance of change. And I look at Daryl Davis, who's going to Ku Klux Klan members, hardcore, now you're idiot with a Confederate flag, guy who goes, you know what, you're not people and blah, 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 all this other stuff. And he's changed their minds. He's turned them around. A black man who's a musician has gone in and collected, I don't know how many KKK ropes. Mm-hmm. He probably walks around. And you look at the people who get angry with him. Sure, the white supremacists are like, wait a minute, you're, you're, you're taking people away from us. But who else is mad at the people that are going, we can't have a conversation with these people. And the minute that you break that conversation, there's zero chance of redeeming them, period. So if you're going to pull that cord, you've got to be really damn sure that person is never going to be redeemable. And I look at Crowder and I look at Tucker Carlson. I don't see them as, you know, and I'm going to, that's going to be great as people. Because what are they doing? They're entertainers. Yeah. They're entertaining the personas. Yeah. They're personas. They're, you look at you, you look at uh, what's his name, Stephen, the the late night guy, um, uh, CBS. Colbert. Colbert. Thank you. Look at Colbert. You look at his shtick that he did as a hardcore right wing, and then people are like, "Wait, wait a minute! He's a hardcore lefty." It was an entertainer. These people are all entertainers, and they're pandering to an audience, an audience that is being increasingly told, boop, unplug, boop, drop the cords. These people are irredeemable. These people are irredeemable. And if anyone has, anyone's voted for Trump, they're a racist. If you voted for Obama, you don't believe in the power of law, and you voted for somebody that's, that is terrible and all this other stuff, you think about it, and where we're sitting here is they're saying, we have to talk to the normies. I know hardcore leftists and right, righties. 
I know them really well. I know people that vote blue no matter who. It's amazing how we meet in the middle on 80% of everything. You know, yeah. hey, why, why do you want a national minimum wage? Well, we just need $15 everyone. We, we don't need it here. And you're going to impact poor people the worst. Yeah. You want to do it in California? Go ahead and do it in California. But you're not going to, if you do it here, you're going to hurt people. And they go, well, I don't know what life is like out there. Let's have a conversation. Instead of me saying, Boop, you have no clue what you're doing economically. I'm disconnecting the court. It's a conversation. And that's what this keeps getting back to. We look at the ways that same-sex marriage changed, not only in this country, but worldwide. I mean, Argentina, one of the most Catholic countries in the world, has legalized same-sex marriage. I mean, the Pope is still, I mean, the Pope is still, why people still, you know, are all, because, oh, gay marriage is a sin. But the reality is that changed because there was conversation. There was, this is a problem, and we know that you don't like this, but we're going to tell you why we want to do this, and that wins more people. You aren't disconnecting. You're building more connections. I hate the idea of disconnecting. There's always going to be that one asshole. Yes, we all know that one asshole that is never going to change. They probably have a screw loose, and you're probably going to want to disconnect with them anyway because they let, they think that the peanut butter sandwich told them to go shoot JFK. So if, if those are the people, and as I said, it's a very rare time that you would disconnect from somebody. But an entertainer, stuff like that, when you get to boycotts and stuff like that, boycott away. Have fun. The one problem I have with it is when you go after somebody who goes up there and says, you know what, I think the Coke thing was stupid. And I think that was racist, like what Hody said. Now, imagine a group of people heard that. We have this lovely little broadcast. They go out and find my work, and they say, you have a racist. You need to fire this person. Okay, they can do that. My company could fire me. I've lost my livelihood. Guess what my viewpoint is on racism now? (laughs) I've all of a sudden polarized you. Yeah. Polarized them. And that's exactly what's going on. There are no consequences for these people. When they sit there and go as a mob, as a mob into a place and you got to do this or you got to fire this person for having a, you know, and yes, there are people that have bad days. There are people that say things that are terrible, but if you see them as irredeemable and you throw them out, guess what? That irredeemable. They become another. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't change. That, I, and just to add a little bit of uh, clarification there, I think it's not so much that I advocate completely um, cutting off communication. I think it's an important uh, di- to distinguish between the public and the private sphere in this case, in the sense that I would say, let's say I were, and I, I, I this would be very masochistic, but let's say I were friends with Tucker Carlson. Um, but let, and I, <laughs> if if I were, you know, I would probably want to maintain a back channel with him and be friendly and try to redeem him, but publicly. I don't want him carrying the banner of libertarianism adjacent to some of the things that he said. And so I think that's where I wouldn't necessarily advocate like a complete social alien, you know, complete uh, uh, exile, you know, out of a society or, or anything like that. It's 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 more so not allowing them um, the ability to, to say I'm a libertarian, even when they hold def- like completely anti-libertarian views and being able to say, no, that person, even though they claim a libertarian themselves to be a libertarian, at least right now, based on the basket of views that they're espousing, 
they are not representative of libertarianism. And, and maybe I continue to talk to that person and try to get them over the hump of, you know, that last 20%. Um, and, and I agree with you. I think it would be, it would be bad to completely alienate people because that's when they go off in their echo chambers and you create, you know, terrorist cells and things like that. So, so I, I agree. I think, I think cutting them off is the, is the wrong idea, but I think we, we can't be, too appeasing of them either in public by saying, oh yeah, that guy's a libertarian. Yeah, he's got some bad views and he just says these things every once in a while, but look at all these people he's bringing into the movement. It's like, no, that person is toxic and they have toxic views. I will be happy to call them a libertarian if they adopt libertarian views. But until that time, I will call them out as not being libertarian. Yeah, and that's that's fine. Sorry, Hody. It's okay. Yeah, you, you both are talking over. Me. Yeah, my turn, my turn. Damn it! Um, mute button. Right. So, so my my background. I have a lot of uh, religious studies. In my background. That's what I majored in. So, I have a lot of examples that kind of border on this. So, bear with me for a sec. But I promise it's all libertarian. So, one of the things that um, that that I I that inspired me was uh, I loved the debate between Bill Nye and Ken Ham about uh, evolution versus creationism. And I remember um, there were like something like 17 atheist outlets that said Bill Nye lost before the debate because he was willing to debate. And I hated that because I think for me, the like I respected him and I'm, I'm a religious person. I respected him so much for going up and just saying like, no, these are people that deserve to be debated with. I might hate their, hate his view. I might hate Ken Ham's view and his whole idea of this. And I might not believe anything he has to say, but people believe that. And so it's a view worth talking about, you know, I think, um, so, so this, this ties into kind of the race issue, which is like the just asking questions thing, right? Like I'm just, um, is it okay to ask the question if, if races are not genetically equal? Yes, it is okay. However, the answer to that question has been answered and it's an overwhelming amount of evidence that says, yes, race is in fact, genetically, we know that there, that humans for whatever reason have no subset species. We're all the same genus and species. We have no subset species. We actually originally thought like they we were killed different the other subset. The yeah, animals, yeah, right. We got rid of them. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Or their skin is clothing. Right. But the idea was, I mean, in the Neanderthal thing, we joke about it, but the joke, the, the thought was that Neanderthals were still around. And it, it's funny because this, this mentality, you t- we talked about Europe earlier, still very much exists in Europe. And I'm not even talking about like white against black. I'm talking like French versus Italian versus Spanish versus, I'm, I mean, Luxembourgian. Like we're talking like these, these little groups of people in their country think they're better than the other white people in like Sweden and Denmark. And, and it's just, it is one of those that they still hold on to this genetic thing, even though the question has been answered. So the thing is, I love, I'm fine with somebody asking the question as long as they genuinely ask the question. When they ignore the answer, that's when I have the problem, you know? And this is, this kind of ties into like, so another guy who's loved to flirt with the, with the movement is Stefan Molyneux. And I have a huge problem with it because he wrote a whole book that was, about genetics and and how like iqs are tied to them it was like what am i not allowed to observe this and i'm like well no you're allowed to observe it but then you also have to examine the facts the, the science you have to examine all these other things and so i have a huge problem with it because you can't 
be passionate enough to write a book about it and talk about it 90% of the time and then just be like, well, I mean, I'm just throwing it out there. It's like, well, I mean, if you're talking about this 90% of the time, have you not done any work, any effort, any, any, any attempt to understand? And so this is why I, I and, and I'm going to have to, I know you both have kind of tamed off the disassociation thing. I think there is a time to disassociate with somebody even before they're completely irredeemable. And this is why, because I do believe there is a time when people will look at it and say, well, you didn't say anything when your movement said this. And I do think there's a time when you have to stand up and say, I remember once. So another good example, um, Arvin Vora, I like the guy most of the time he talked about shooting up a school and that being a good idea or a school board, I guess. And that being a good idea, I was too quick to kick him out of the movement, but I should, but I, but people did need to know in a public way that I disassociate with what he said. So I do think there is kind of a, a time for that performance, not that it's a performance, but for me to communicate to other people who are maybe attend school boards or who, yeah. you know, don't, sure don't like everybody murder. Else feels welcome. Right. Yeah. To be like, Hey guys, that does not represent me. Uh, that's not welcome here. That type of behavior isn't welcome here. That being said, I do think there should be time to be like, Hey, look, Arvin, fix yourself. He did say that he regretted it and you know, there's that. And so like, maybe there's a time for him to like come around on it. Um, I I think that here's the thing when we talk about like Daryl Davis, who's an incredible human being, a very brave person. Not everybody's a Daryl Davis. Um, I'm big on missionary work again with the religious thing, but I think this is, I think this is my last religious inference Um, (laughs) is, is that, there are people who need to be reached. And what we do is, you know, when I work with other missionaries, we talk and we say like, well, who's the best person to reach this, this, this guy, here's the type of questions that they're asking. Here's the type of problems that they have. I disassociate with some people because I just, it's, I can't reach them. I'm not the right person. I'm not, I'm not maybe brave enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not. And and I don't even want to say it's just that, but sometimes you just have a niche, you know, like, Hey, I'm very good at talking with people. Like one, one of the things that I discovered was I was very good at reaching out to people about borders, right. About like, like about opening borders and, or elimination of borders entirely. And it was something that I was very good at reaching out to right leaning people about. And I'm like, man, like I'm really good at this because I can appeal to their sense of economics, to their sense of, you know, small government, to their sense of property rights. And, and I'm, and I'm just, I have a really good pitch for it. I'm I have a really good shtick for it. So like, if you have some right winger who is supportive of borders, I usually won't block the person because I'm like, Hey, I can get you over here. Like, give me some time. Let's talk about it. Let's have an honest debate. And like, as long as they're engaging me, honestly, I feel pretty good about making them in support of open borders eventually. Right. The, the issue that I have is, well, obviously some people don't engage honestly, in which case I, I can't do anything about that. But sometimes they'll ask a question that maybe I'm not good about, you know, um, one of the things that, um, uh, Dave Smith gets up a lot of backlash for is it's like he, he, you know, has on people with the race science, race science, and he doesn't invite these neurologists who have studied the difference between, you know, the, the links between synapses and, and, and the way brains are formed and the way bodies are structured and all this work. And it's like, well, he doesn't invite those people on his show who have done all that work. He invites the guy who's just asking questions. That's always the wrong question. Right. Well, you know, off your audience. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's part of that is having an audience as well. And maybe I, I mean, maybe in a way we're feeding into the libertarian, the we are libertarians audience audience by because they like being challenged and they like hearing left and right and center views and all that. And they, and, and they don't want the same thing. 
But I think for me, I've always been true to myself and this is the place where I belong. And I think there is a place where you say, I'm not being true to myself. I'm doing it because I have an audience and this is what they're going to love. And this is where they're going to lap up. Maybe Crowder falls in that category. Maybe he's genuinely a white supremacist either way. uh, I mean, after that, you kind of can't, you can't defend him anymore. (laughs) He's done. I mean, he's just, it's not, it's one of those where you just say like, okay, here's the thing. If you think Crowder can be redeemed, like Brian said, then you need to reach out to Crowder, but you can't share his videos and platform him. And you can't, you can't like be like encouraging him. I think a lot of libertarians would be like, look, he's not technically racist. Okay. It's it's fine. Fine. If you just think he was having a goof and it was just a locker room laugh and it's just all funny. Okay. That's you, but how does that look to somebody else, right? How does that look to your friend? I mean, it's funny to mention meth because I think of that as like a white people problem, but like <laughs> he, he wasn't even like right about it. Just, yeah, yeah was, they were screwing up their drug references. I mean, it wasn't even a good shtick, you know? Right, was, yeah. <laughs> it's like, guys, I, I can tell you rehearsed this. You had the slides ready to go. Did not Did you not have somebody edit your script? Anyway, like it's just one of those where I was like, you know what? I, I think it's one of those that you do at least publicly need to be like this was wrong especially for all your friends who might, might be looking at you you mentioned um uh the transphobic post to just be like hey i know you took it down but like hey we i still want to talk about it with you to like it's cool to reach out to people personally if you want to reach out to crowder personally and you think you're the right person that can make him go oh you know what you changed my mind right you, i challenge people to change my mind you're the one that did it you know, there's some people you feel like you can go on the show and actually change their minds. You know, um, man, I remember there's this interview that, that has kind of been suppressed. But Ben Shapiro got shredded by a transgender girl. And it was just some like YouTuber, somebody who thought he could really take advantage of because of his you know, intellectual prowess or everything. Mm-hmm. And he kept accidentally calling her her like he should be doing, by the way. But he kept accident- and correct trying to correct himself and like trying to remember her dead name. Like it was one of those like like stupid moments. And here's the thing. He, he doesn't want to change his mind. Right. That's the problem with the change my mind thing. Crowder doesn't want his mind changed right now. I don't feel that he's in a reachable place. Now, Brian, if you feel you can reach him, by all means. Right. (laughs) He's an entertainer. He's pandering to his audience. The minute that your political or social movement becomes your income, you're, you're, Mm -hmm. you're beholden to it and you're beholden to your greatest donors. So if I all of a sudden decide I want to launch a podcast and I see all my Patreons are like, you know, you're, kind of a little fuzzy on this racism thing. I think, you know, there's really something to be said for, you know, oh, well, I got to make rent this month. So, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do what you guys want. So that's when you cross that. Ideological golden handcuffs. Yes. That's what I would call that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You you cross that line, it changes. You become an entertainer and you pander to your audience. Stephen Colbert panders to his audience. MSNBC panders to their audience. They all sit there in rooms with suits who go, look, we did this and we saw a 3% drop in viewership, which adds up to 2% loss in revenue. You're either going to change your mind or you're going to be unemployed. Guess what's going to happen? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Brian, I, I guess your point is well taken on this. I do. I, I do need to think about it a little bit because I have been part of groups that were like, hey, let's get this people kicked out of his apartment because he went on this. I remember the guy in New York who was like, these people don't. 
speaking of things, I, I don't know. I, I remember being, I actually was a part of it. Like people that made the calls was like, Hey, I saw this. And I do think there is something to say about voluntary relationships. And if you're voluntarily housing somebody that is chewing people out for speaking Spanish or Mexican is that like yeah. in front of in front of you, you know, I mean, he was a lawyer for goodness sake. That was crazy. But it was just like, I remember, um, Perfect example. The the guy in the park with the, with the girl who like strangled her dog, oh. keep it away from. And I remember that guy like was so smart because he, he, he came back and he was like, look, everybody's got her fired, kicked out of her apartments. Whatever. That wasn't or got her dog taken away from her. That was not my goal. Yeah. My goal was to be like, hey, look at how you behave and change how you behave. This girl's not going to change her behavior because of these things. If anything, it might be getting worse. I do but- think it's it's something that I'll still have to suck on a little bit. I think I, I'm not sure if there's one hard and fast rule other than using your own judgment. Um, right. But it is, it is, it is worth thinking about. Well, Brian, we've, we've gone off. All right. Us libtards are done. Go ahead, Brian. <laughs> Give us a piece of your mind. <laughs> my, my piece of mind, actually, I already used part of it with Daryl Davis and the cancel culture ideas and stuff like that. I am a hundred percent for you go, you know what? I don't want to watch Tucker Carlson. I don't want to watch, you know, any of these idiots. I don't want to watch MSNBC. I'm going to boycott them. That's a beautiful thing. You you got a choice. Go ahead and watch whatever you want or you don't want to watch. Don't share the memes. Don't do stuff like that. Where I see it crossing the line is when you are going and saying, I'm going to attack this person and I'm going to get them fired, get them kicked out of their house, mm-hmm. do all this other stuff. And I have no consequences for my bad behavior. Like if you're going to go boycott a business and you're really serious about it, Go out. You want to get other people. Go stand out in front. Go march up and down. Take that risk. Put yourself not on the line, but at least go out there and say, I believe in this. Jumping into a horde of 5,000 people, overwhelming some poor rental you know, agent who's sitting there going, wow, we got all these people calling saying they're never going to buy from us because this guy still lives here. Can we terminate his lease? Sure. You know, it's just like sticking the IRS on somebody because they pissed off somebody in the government, like Joe the plumber or anybody else you can think of. Or, or you know, foster parents know it all too well when DCS gets a keys, you know, burr up their keister. Somebody doesn't like somebody. I've personally seen them go ahead and try to take kid, people's kids away because they didn't like the way the person talked to them. And you think about that and you hear that and you go, that's horrendous. And that person should be, you know, in any sort. But you're doing the same damn thing. You know, okay, somebody says something horribly racist like that. Look, the girl thought with the dog and stuff. Guess what? The guy was right. Look, just, just, this is a, a teachable moment. And she may not be ready for the lesson, but it doesn't mean that you beat her with a stick and destroy her life for the next couple of years and, and make her a meme. Um, just because, you know, hey, I, this is horrible. You're not winning people. The normies look at that and they get really, I won't say afraid, but I say they really get repulsed by it. Because I think most normies think people are redeemable. And when you sit down and talk to them and you find out, you know, hey, this guy's a Trump supporter. Hey, this guy voted for Biden and stuff like that. But we've been friends for years. So does my friendship end because they voted for Trump or Biden? No. Because I'd have to unfriend a lot of friggin' people. So the thing is this. Views are malleable. As we get older, our views change. It's just reality. Until you hit about 60, then it's get off my lawn, you friggin' hippie. 
But so we got about three more years on you, Brian. All right. Oh no, <laughs> I'm kidding. Forty nine. Come on, give me a, another decade. Full Clint Eastwood on my roster. So, but you know, the thing is, this it gets back to redeemability. It gets back to personal values and personal investment in something. If you really hate the guy down the street because he's a terrible person, he's a terrible human being and he beats his kids and he beats his dog. That's a entirely different story. If he goes down and says something horribly racist and stuff like that, and you know, something bad happens to him, loses his job or something like that. The last thing you want to do is go up there, give him double middle finger. Yeah, you deserved it. Cause what's going to happen here? You, you know, there are not every racist, horrible comment is indicative of somebody. We see it all the time where somebody gets caught in camera saying something stupid and they instantly regret it. Hell, meth people. I regret saying meth people today. Um, <laughs> no, no, I regret saying meth people, so I'm going to go on record. Okay, not everybody that lives in this town that's next to me does meth. <laughs> More than 1%. That's all I'll say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but the thing is, is that you got to look at it as redemption. At some point, yeah. people are going to come around. I look at my my views on gay marriage before 2010 and after. People come around. People understand people want to be fair. We don't want the government to be the arbiter of fair. We don't want the media to be arbiter of fair. We want to be the arbiter of what we see as fair with our lives and our people. And when somebody comes in from the outside, they're not going to have the same viewpoints that you do most likely and they're going to look at it through their own personal lens no matter how many freaking law books they sit on or anything like that we've seen it with the usda we've seen it with local um uh you know child uh foster agencies and things like that we've seen that with the government okay we're all human in the end we're all going to screw up we're all going to say something horrible like meth people uh on a podcast and we need that time to be able to come back and say, hey, look, you know what? I, I realize I shouldn't have said it like that, but this is what I was trying to say. And, and that doesn't mean try to get my mortgage canceled because I said meth people. So that that's really my point here. If you're if you're really that invested in, in destroying someone's life, then you need to make that same investment and risk the same problems coming back on you because that's what ends up happening a lot of times. Randall. Yeah. I apologize. No, I, I think that's a very valid point, Brian. I think um, we all collectively need to have more, you know, compassion and empathy for the people that we're arguing against and kind of try to think of ourselves in, you know, what if I were that horribly misinformed on a topic? Like, you know, wouldn't I want to be shown the light? And when, and um, I think, you know, it's, one of the one of the uh, unfortunate consequences of uh, social media culture is the instant knee jerk tribalism that tends to get people in camps, and then you know defending bad behavior just because that person's in their tribe, or you know advocate you know or decrying what would be good behavior from the other tribe, and you know and that sort of thing. And and so I, I think you you definitely um, hit on something very important there, and and we all have to have empathy and thinking about like you know if this person messed up like what if i had you know that mess up but um at the same time i think um 
we need to think about, you know, what is proportion, a proportionate response right. um, and, you know, uh, reaching out to them in such a way where they might know that maybe they're at risk of some of that happening at, at if they don't, you know, shape up, um, but not giving them that opportunity to express a contrite heart, you know, to put it in religious uh, terms. That's yeah. the real problem is that, you know, if you don't give that that opportunity for redemption and you don't have, because if, if you can redeem that person, you now have an apostate and you now have somebody that is like way more passionate than you can ever hope to be oftentimes yourself. If you can get that person over. Um, and, and uh, I, you're right. I, I think a lot of times we just need to um, give a, take a little bit more of a wait and see approach sometimes and not, you know, go to the scorched earth nuclear option of teaching somebody a lesson when maybe there's some sort of interim, um, you know, steps we can perhaps take. There, there's a justice and mercy are often oftentimes juxtaposed. Mm. And it's funny because this is something that uh, again with the religion thing, but yeah, like the, these are not, God is both just, you know, believes in justice and believes in mercy. And it's something that, that as humans, we have a tough time grappling with because we tend to think of justice as revenge as getting back on somebody and we tend to think of mercy is just do whatever you want you know what i mean and i'll and i'll let it go and it's really neither of those things you know we see christ be both just you know believe in justice and mercy when you know he's like hey don't stone this girl but also hey girl stop cheating on your husband you know like this is this is one of those things that we need to kind of incorporate you know and and say like okay let's 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 both be you know it's sad because i like the term social justice warrior because i would love a socially just society if what you said was was just and and people went around talking to each other and being just and saying like i'm not going to say this because it's not fair i'm not going to treat people like this because it's not fair i like fairness fairness is good you know but but like the reason it's funny because social justice warrior, the term was actually you know coined by the left. It meant a good thing. The reason it means a bad thing is because what, what does it often become? What are some of the most prominent examples being a total jerk to somebody who has committed a minor infraction or no infraction at all? You know, they, they want to take, you know, you don't want to take your stand. I mean, we have, how many people in prison for victimless crimes and you're upset because somebody wore a prom dress. Okay. You're not a valid actor anymore. Your opinions don't matter to me anymore because here you are screaming at the top of your lungs because some girl wore a dress that she thought was cute and had no ill will in her heart. And you want to cancel her and get her kicked out of school and make sure she can never see your friends again or talk to your friends and here it is, you know, the guy you voted for for president put a few million people in prison, ripped them away from their families and kids for smoking pot. I'm sorry, you've invalidated yourself. And so, like, I understand, like, why there's a negative connotation with social justice warrioring. My brother really ch- kind of changed my mind on this one because he considers himself a social justice warrior. And we talked about it. And he really was like, hey, listen, like, let me talk to you like about what I mean about social justice. And I want this socially just society. And there's a good way to to go about it and in creating that justice while still having kind of that mercy or at least that like, Hey, let me, let me tell you how that might come across. Like, I think that's such an appropriate thing to with like, you know, the girl in the prom dress to be like, Hey, let me just tell you how this might come across to some people just a heads up, you know, like letting you know, uh, why people, why it might upset some people. Now the prom dress thing was done because it wasn't even a, when you <laughs> the way cultural appropriation uh originally is the reason it's supposed to matter 
when we talk about cultural appropriation is if you've appropriated a culture that there is some kind of um, significance and importance to it, right? Like when I, when the Maori tattoos is when I, I write about video games and somebody kind of threw these in a video game without realizing there's actually a kind of a, mm-hmm. a spiritual and genetic significance to this. Like a, it's a heritage, right? It, it, it goes to show certain things and they just kind of threw it in the game, just being like, Oh, whatever, you know, I, I don't care. It's like, eh, you should have put a little more thought into this, you know, or at least if you want to, I'm not saying you can't use it, but embrace it. Like, give us the background. Like, I'm cool do to have it in video games. Yeah. Right. Talk about it or, or talk about the person's ignorance for getting it if you want it. Like, it's a, it's a, it's an elephant in the room that needs to be addressed. Most people don't get it because we are not of the Maori culture, heritage. You know what I mean? So you get away with it, but that doesn't mean it's right. You know, which is why it's important for people who know to stand up and say like, oh, hey, time out real quick. You know what I mean? Like that's something that actually matters. And so like, that's why we don't include those things. Whereas if it's like, it's cultural because I like it and my culture tends to do it. It's not cultural appropriation for somebody else to do it. That's what I'm, I'm it, it's what you've got to figure is cultural appropriation. We do have kind of this, like <sighs> they call it canceling. I mean, we we've Jordan, you wanted to talk about boycotts for a little bit. I love the concept of the boycott. People don't think they work. They work remarkably well. Oh yeah. And let me and let me tell you why. Especially, especially in a free market, because mm-hmm. the competition is so fierce in a free market. I, I'm I worked in restaurant management, so here we go. I'll get off of religion and talk about fast food real quick. So these fast food places all all kind of pull in somewhere in the realm of like one one percent profits, right? They're kind of hovering around there. They're, they like to cut it close. They put a few items that they lose money on that brings people in and hope they buy this big thing of Coke that they get money on. And, and you know, that's kind of the game that they play. Um, and it's always tight, but because of that tight competition, they, they, they got these 1% profits. What happens if you do something that offends 2% of their base customers mm-hmm. and they won't shop there anymore? You go You're under. Yeah. You're in the red. You lose the competition, right? Now, let me let me give kind of a a, a sad example, but like um, they they did this study that showed like seventeen percent of people won't uh, fly if the pilot is female, and that's why it became hard to uh, hire uh, female pilots for a long time. Um, it's getting better. This study was done. I, unfortunately, it wasn't done a long time ago. It's something like ten years ago, but it's it's something. And so airlines are like, well, we can't hire at this. Well, okay, but let's let's weaponize that for the other side for good now. Let's do this for the right reasons instead of the wrong reasons. Let's say like we want this type of inclusion. I want a place where I feel welcome. I want all these things that bring me in. And as soon as you start creating these divisions, I mean, these cake shops. They need to be subject to market law when they refuse to bake a cake for a gay person. I'm not saying that they need government force to do it, but if you look at them, I mean, I mean, look at any of the the people that refuse to bake cakes and look at what happens to their business two years. They're under, they're gone, right? Right. People don't want to do it. They don't want to do it. Like they get this like immediate surge of like the bigots being like, I'm going to get a bigot cake because that tastes better than regular cake for some reason. You know what I mean? And then within one or two years, they die off because they lost you know, they lost a percentage that is not inconsequential. And you Mm -hmm. either have to jack up your prices. People don't want jacked up prices. So they're gone. It's just, these are the market consequences that need to occur. And these are kind of like what I, I think that that's the natural way of talking about it. So like Brian talks about not being heavy handed, but that kind of justice is going to, to come about Mm -hmm. one way or another. And it's it's appropriate to warn somebody like, hey, listen, people are going to want to do business with you, house you, employ you, whatever it may be. 
this isn't even me forcing you out of it. Cause I think that's kind of what the, like when people negatively refer to cancel culture, they kind of want this very artificial force. Like let's, Mm -hmm. let's turn it off. Whereas right now I kind of like with the Crowder thing, I don't need to erupt every time I see somebody use it, but I personally am going to stop using it. The stock of that's going to go down. The the demand for it's going to go down because of this. Cause people are going to be like, Oh, I use that meme. I feel kind of gross now because Mm -hmm. I'm going to turn off some people by using it. So less is going to happen, you know? Crowder might see a big little surge in his little area because it, it appeals to an, a specific audience and maybe his audience or whatever it is. But he's further, he's doing more damage and cutting himself off from becoming mainstream. As libertarians, we want our ideas to become mainstream. And so to do that, we can't cut people off. We have to include them in. We have to give them that pipeline, put them in here and just be like, hey, listen, you know, we talk about the alt-left and alt-right to tanky and fascist pipeline or whatever it may be. Uh, I understand that's a problem and we should address it, but let's not deny the fact that we are pulling a record amount of people from these, these ideologies and, and funneling them back in. And we do it by having these practical, intelligent, tactical conversations and being the right person. Like I said about the missionary thing, being the right person to have that conversation. Yeah. Changing hearts and minds one at a time is really what it boils down to. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> One thing I've made an observation over the years, and and I found that people are far more accepting of others when they travel. And I don't mean going down to Disney World. I don't mean going down and having a good crowd. I'm talking about getting on a plane for eight hours, go to a foreign country, and it can be something, you know, you know, like England or something like that. But you start seeing things differently, and and uh, it gets back to whole Rick Steve's uh, discussion that he had, is that that changes everything when you sit down when he went to iran right during all the middle of the garbage that was going on during obama and stuff like that he went over there and and met with the iranian people and they're like wait a minute you you don't want to kill us you don't you don't want to burn the country down no actually most americans really don't give a crap about it they don't like your government maybe but people no they're fine and it's amazing how that changes people's minds over time. And a successful economy breeds that type of travel. Yes, some of them are never going to leave the state. I actually have, I've known a few people that we were the first time that we ever took them out of like the county area, you know? And it's like going, you've never driven out of state? No, never. It's that like, makes you a missionary of sorts. I know, but that's the whole thing that you have to find somebody to do a missionary trip. I think missionary trips, they tend to be a little one-sided kind of a number mm. kind of thing. You know, Hey, we need to get some of these. Uh, I had a friend that went to India and was very proud of the number of people he converted to Christianity. And I was going, is there, are their lives any better? Well, well, no, it's still a complete shithole, but I, I converted them. It's like, okay. India is a shithole, everybody. Live from Brian. Live from Brian. <laughs> I can say that because Brian, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> I'm you're funny. I can say Shenzhen is a shithole, but it's, it's improved a lot. But there's been to South Africa. The parts of South Africa are a complete shithole. The people there will tell you it's a shithole, but it's because of the corrupt government. And it's not because of the people. You'll find that the people there have become far less racist than they were 20 years ago. Um, but they're also seeing a resurgence in racism because they're being told they're terrible human beings, the white people there. They're only a 10% minority, 
but they're being told they're terrible and that they need to leave and that they need to get off their land and that they're going to take it back and they're going to do horrible things to them. And this does happen. And if you hear that and you're going, yeah, that's pretty awful. I can tell you this much. Everyone I talked to in South Africa that was white has an exit plan because they know it's going straight to shit. And that's unfortunate because that's a country that could be a, a banner to the world of saying, 20 years ago, we, we were one of the most racist governments. 20, 30 years ago, one of the most racist governments on the planet. And we have completely come around. And people just want revenge. People just want to play politics. People just want the anger in order to keep themselves in political and media power. So, again, I'm going all around here. And I apologize. <laughs> Well, the, what, what, one thing I'll just touch on on that that I think is really awesome is somebody who was a big proponent of that message was Anthony Bourdain. Yes. Um, and the idea of, you know, going across borders and not only that, but when you're there, having an intimate meal with the people there and seeing them as people. And some of what you touched on reminded me of what my some of the stuff my dad does. My, my dad is in um, agriculture and sells agricultural supplies and, and works with um groups internationally. And um, he works with folks in Iran and he works with people in, in China. And it's amazing that the kind of back channel that business relationships create to short circuit government propaganda, um, where you have, you know, these free relationships and free goods flowing of, between individuals across borders who then see the real story and then can tell the real story. And I think, you know, I, I would, I can't emphasize and, and agree with that enough that I think people really need to make a concerted effort to leave the country and interact with people because otherwise it's hard to see the reality other than what say the government's going to paint for you. And, and you really want to see that humanity so that you can see past that, you know, it helps bolster you against that propaganda over time. Cody, can I just tell one quick story and I promise I'll keep it quick. It's very appropriate. You're fine. My, my uh, brother-in-law works um, part of an international firm-based uh, Japan joint venture type of thing. They send engineers over to the U.S. for a year or two. They come over here with their families. They go back and get promoted because they're awesome. They work in the U.S. So one thing he does every year, uh, and they, I think they even did it last year, was they bring all the Japanese engineers over to his house. They make up a huge dinner, <laughs> and he puts out all these guns. Wow. Yes. My brother-in-law is a huge hunter and trapper and these are people from japan that have never really seen a gun up close let alone fire one because it's completely illegal over there you can't have that or the police can have that so they come over here and their eyes just light up it's christmas time and the the eight-year-old girls out there with a shotgun trying to you know they're doing it safe and they're doing something he's got the land to do it and stuff like that but they have a blast when they first come over here, if they haven't been warned or told, you know, hey, these people are actually pretty decent to deal with. The Japanese mindset of Americans is we're fat, we're stupid, and we buy lots of stupid stuff. And, you know, only three of those things are true, by the way. You can just see. But they come over here and they get a completely different mindset of people. And my brother in law's good hardcore Trump supporter and stuff like that and things. And, you know, but the thing is this, he, he is so open. And when he goes over there, what do they do? They take him out and mm -hmm. they go out and have fun Japanese style. And he's like, I can't keep 
up with these people because they don't have them out drinking till two in the morning and you got to be at the plant at seven. So it, it's amazing how that changes people's minds and not just going to the Thai restaurant down the street and getting mad because they, they didn't have American cheese for your tofu. But, um, you know, just having that travel and doing that opens so many minds, so much dialogue. And that's something I wish that we could, you know, push more of here in this country because we really need it and the and the world needs it. So American cheese on tofu sounds terrible. Oh, uh, God. <laughs> terrible. <laughs> my least favorite kind of cheese mixed with my least favorite kind of protein. American uh, cheese on tofu. <laughs> it wouldn't be a podcast with me if I didn't talk about cheese at some point. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm into a cheese podcast. I'm good with that. All right. Sweet, sweet. Um, I think everybody has been vague at some point. So like the way I like, this kind of makes you relate to discriminatory behavior. I think everybody can relate to this because everybody's saying has heard somebody say, Oh, what they want is blank. And whatever they, whatever the blank is, is not true. And you are in the category of whatever they is. Right. So, Oh, this is what all capitalists want is for gays to get kicked out of the community. Right. Oh, this is what all socialists want is for, you know, the minimum wage to be $25 an hour or whatever. And like, you'll, and, and like, it's true about some Whenever you make these generalities, you tend to hit a few, but the problem with the generality is you miss a lot of the time. And so, like, look, there's some people, I am probably the stereotypical white guy. Okay, I, I get it, right? Most of the time, if you make a, <laughs> if you make a generality about a white person, um, I will probably fit it. However, when you refer to all white people being, you know, stubborn, for example, I'm not stubborn. Um, I'm a little too not stubborn sometimes. Um, and so like when the Coke thing comes up, I'm going to be like, well, hey, of those seven bad things you listed about white people, I don't relate to one of those. I don't find that very fair. Okay, now look, sometimes you're going to do the they somebody and six out of the seven things you say aren't going to be true or, you know, or seven out of seven. Or, or one out of seven. Either way, it makes them feel ostracized. Everybody's had this happen to them. The reason I bring up this story is so that people can relate, right? When we talk about, uh, you talk about Anthony Bourdain, and I like this idea of us seeking diversity, right? Yeah. We don't need affirmative action. I'm not telling you to go out and mandate it or whatever like that, but diversity is helpful. Yeah. Diversity enriches your own life by trying different experiences, at least enough to even be able to say like, you know what? I tried that food and I wasn't really a big fan of it, but there's some things you're going to pick up from every culture, something that you kind of enjoy. One of the things that I really enjoyed finally, we talked about Japan is it's, you don't necessarily have to speak immediately after someone finishes speaking. You can take the time, think huh. about what you're, what you're going to say and then respond. And that it's air totally is okay. Dead air is okay. We're on a podcast, so it's not, but in, right. <laughs> that's why we're not big in Japan. <laughs> um, but, you know, like it's one of those that I, I enjoyed it because for me, I like to take the time. I'm a much better writer than I am a speaker. I am a professional writer. That is what I do for a living. So I much prefer to write to speak because I can say it exactly. I can go back and I can edit what I say a hundred times. So I don't say things like meth people. Ryan, you are not alone. <laughs> I, um, I was talking with, um, Ashley Shade, Mike Shipley, and I didn't say transgendered, and I forget what I said. Like, I didn't say transvestite because I was too smart for that. But I, uh, I said something wrong. I referred to it incorrectly. Transsexual, she, maybe. Transsexual. That was the one. Yeah, yeah, I said transsexual or whatever, and was corrected, and they're all very pleasant about it. But it was one where I was just like, "Oh, there's a learning experience for me." Okay, like you know, and I, I know we're in the closing minutes here. I do want to talk about that. I have a black friend thing 
that is actually more effective than people realize. And because you can laugh as much as you want about Daryl Davis, but the truth is, is that these people ended up abandoning their KKK society roots, friendships, ties, support system, because they had a black friend, they made a black friend and suddenly their worldview changed. Mm-hmm. When people, we have this uh, phrase that we say, Be, oh, I'm that libertarian. You might've heard that before going around. You know, we have this phrase, like I'm that libertarian. We want that to be a good thing to be like, man, that's when, when you're that libertarian, in somebody's life, that somebody's like, man, that's the guy who shoveled my driveway. didn't say anything. That's the guy who has donated his time down at the shelter. That's the guy who I know us here in Ogden, we had a big thing where the, the local government t- took all the homeless tents, supplies, mm. burned them all, destroyed them all. And we were the, it was, we, the libertarians who stood in, we're like, nope, we're going to give you more tents. We're taking donations. We're giving you more food. We're replacing, you, you've closed down these places. We're doing it. We're going to break the law in order to do it. And that's the, that's who I am when I'm libertarian. So now here's the thing. This is two examples. When people hear libertarian, a lot of the time they think brutalist. They think people that yeah. hate the homeless, the people, they only care about the people that are self-sufficient, right? It's libertarians get vade by this all the time. They don't care about the poor in their minds. A homeless person here in Ogden that hears that will laugh out loud because it's not true. And they know it isn't true. And so like we prove to themselves, it's like, we want to be that friend. So that when somebody, even if they're not libertarian, they hear somebody talk smack about the libertarians and they're like, time out a second. I know a whole city that took care of their homeless people and it was the libertarians that did it against the local city, right? Like, like I know of a whole area where the libertarians were the ones. So you can say that and maybe it's true with like your experience because we can't deny people's experiences, but it's important for us to be like that person, you know, to try and be, even if we can't go out and seek it. And even if we don't have the bravery of Daryl Davis, but to at least try to be that person in some kind of uh, in, in different spheres, as much as we can to be that person, because we not only pick up on these great cultural things, but we disperse the great cultural things about ourselves too. Like Brian, you mentioned with the guns and I think that's great. You, you practice it. It becomes like this thing that you're afraid of when it's just sitting there on a desk. You know, I remember Glenn Beck and as conservative as he might be, like had a gun, had it unloaded sitting on the desk. And he was like, it's freaking me out right now because I don't live in that kind of culture. Like I'm, I'm, I'm terrified of it. And I know it's just sitting there. It's a paperweight right now. Like it is nothing. And I can't help, but kind of like experience a lot of fear when I'm looking at it. Yeah. Your story, Brian reminded me of when I brought my Scottish cousin to Cabela's and took him to the gun section. And he was just like, (laughs) Oh Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) But what if somebody takes it off, takes it off the wall and starts killing everyone? (laughs) 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 <laughs> it's it, it's it's just so true i mean i'm glad we had this conversation today guys i appreciate you both uh being here another great week yeah, listeners sure. thanks again for for tuning in we really appreciate it um support us however you can share us around talk about it um i don't think even our last show before this one has gone live yet so i don't know when we'll be live but whenever you're hearing us from in the future um, I'm assuming the stimulus still is what it is. Uh, <laughs> hopefully nothing crazy or they don't like do take backsies and then all of a sudden you order them 1400. Otherwise we'll have to do this whole thing again. Uh, I, I so wanted someone to hack that and throw a couple zeros at the end and watch how fast people cleaned out their bank accounts to do it because that would have been the greatest 
prank played on the U.S. government ever. It would have been detrimental to the dollar. But, oh, my God, that would have been hilarious just to watch that happen. Collapsitarians unite. No, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah. I always, I must have messed up a decimal point somewhere. I always do that. Yeah. <laughs> How is it these mobsters are so good at crime and we suck at it so bad? Um, yeah, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it. Keep listening to We Libertarians. Brian, Jordan, love you both, and we will talk to you all next time. Thanks. Take care. Right. Thanks again.